Good afternoon and welcome to everyone. Welcome to Table Talk, a conversation on race. Um, it is good to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. I hope that everyone is having a fruitful Lent. And as you prepare for Holy Week, you've all been in my prayers and you've all been in my thoughts. And I was preaching in a church this Sunday, talking to the laity, and pretty much everybody I talked to said that they were overwhelmed right now. And so if you're overwhelmed, I want to let you know you're not alone. And I also want to let you know that I want to, I want to pray for you right now. And uh, I'm praying for myself as well as we prepare for Holy Week. And I also want to thank you for coming because I know Holy Week is very busy. So the fact that you made um, some time uh, as you prepare for Holy Week to come and join us in this conversation, it means a lot. So why don't we start with a, with a prayer? Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be together and I pray for everyone who is in this call for all of our brothers and sisters in Florida for all of our laity and clergy in Florida we thank you Lord for the hard work that they are doing the good work of anti-racism strengthen us give us time to rest give us peace and I pray that today's conversation would be inspiring and life-giving in Jesus name we pray amen Okay, so we're excited to begin our third table talk. My name is Erwin Lopez and I'm a member of the beloved community alongside the Bishop's Anti-Racist Task Force. The goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and their lives. And because we believe anti-racism to be an act of discipleship, we believe this is how we love God and how we love our neighbor. So today's webinar is the first of a two-part series titled The History of Race in Florida. And today we have a very special guest who will be our main speaker. And it truly is my honor to introduce the Reverend Geraldine McClellan. She will be leading us in a short presentation that will culminate in the time of question and answer. So while you're listening, please write down any questions you may have and we'll do our best to address them at the end of our webinar. The Reverend Geraldine McClennan is a native Floridian who graduated from Bethune-Cookman College and Gammon Theological Seminary with a Master's of Religious Education and a Master's of Divinity. She's ordained a deacon in 1980, and she was the first Black woman ordained in the Florida Conference. Now a retired ordained elder of the Florida Conference, she has also served as a campus ministry and a district superintendent. She's a certified clinical counselor and with the Association of Pastoral Care and Counseling and a certified chaplain with the VA hospital. So she has a wide range of experience in ministry. Um, and Geraldine has a pastor's heart and an unlimited love for God's people. So without further ado, I'd like um, for Geraldine McLennan, um, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is good to be with you today as we dialogue and find our way where God wants us to be. I've been given several questions to respond to. And one of those questions was to talk about the history of race in Florida from my perspective. And please know this is my perspective, may not be yours, but it asks from my perspective. Just wanna share that I grew up in the country in a racially diverse community. My family was one of three black families 
the only family with children living on the St. John's River in East Palatka, Florida, on five acres of farmland. We were accepted and respected by the families in our area who were white. As children, we played together. Some of those children ate more from our home than they did their own. And as they grew older, they went fishing together, hunting together. And I was the babysitter for one of those families, the Fagan family. But just wanna share with you that the history of race in Florida has been more than I can believe that happened, but the Klan activity was obvious. It was in 1925 that the Klan controlled Putnam County. That's the county I was born and raised in. A Klansman who has family members still there in control, R.J. Hancock was elected sheriff and he helped release a reign of terror where lynch mobs dominated civic life. To stop it, Florida's governor threatened to declare martial law in 1926. There were seven black people in Rosewood, Florida in Levy County, just up the road here from Gainesville. After a white woman alleged she had been sexually assaulted by a black man that, that's, that became known as the Rosewood Massacre. A white mob in Newberry abducted Abraham Wilson who had been jailed for allegedly stealing cattle and lynched him on January the 17th, 1923. On the ground of one of our now United Methodist churches, Pleasant Plain United Methodist Church in Jonesville, Florida, west of Gainesville, a memorial has been erected in memory of the Newberry Six, four men and two women who were lynched by a mob. One was shot, five were hung. And that was on August the 19th, 1916. What's interesting is that the vast majority of the lynching participants were never punished. My mother could have been a victim not by lynching, but in 1962, driving home from Florida Memorial College, now university, was in St. Augustine, Florida at the time. Working until dusk as an assistant dean of women, headed back to our home place in East Palatka, Florida, and just before dark down a long dirt road when she noted hooded Klansman who jumped out from the side of the road in the pathway of her car. She ducked her head just enough to be able to see the road, made it home safely, but visibly shaken. Klan activity, and I share that, is still present today in a clever way, even in the church. The second question I was asked to respond to was how would I summarize the history of race in Florida and beyond. And I'd respond to that by saying extremely critical, but I wanna focus on the church. I'm a child of the central jurisdiction, which was a racially segregated organizational structure in 1939. My grandfather, my daddy, both my daddy's brothers were pastors in the central jurisdictional conference but it was plagued with all kinds of ills, the anger. It was plagued with lack of resources and all the things that was needed in order to make things happen. But we were happy and excited because as a child, as a teenager growing up, president of the Methodist Youth Fellowship, we were able to begin to bond and build bridges that we never thought we could build. Our leaders taught us from childhood how to serve. The camaraderie and the family relationship was strong in the Central Jurisdictional Conference. 
But I want to focus on the church even more, the place where all of us are to be welcome. But I came to realize it's not what you know, but who you know. But it still exists in every aspect of life, which includes the church. Not just the Florida Conference, but annual conferences across the connection, the jurisdiction, and general conference, our governing body. Doors are cracked, but not fully accessible to ethnic persons who are gifted to serve in key leadership. I'm reminded of Bishop Leontine T.C. Kelly, the first black bishop elected. Should have been the first black woman bishop in the southeastern jurisdiction. But it became clear during the balloting that she would not be elected. I understand that she received a call from the Western jurisdiction, which included California and Nevada, and became the first African-American woman bishop in 1984. In 2012, Bishop Sharma Lewis should have been elected as the first black bishop in the SCJ, but there was a rumor. It wasn't a rumor, it was a lie that started, and I will not share who started it, but I received a call from one of the Florida delegates to share with me the rumor that caused delegates to vote differently. I stood and addressed the misinformation and shared where it came from. Our very own Reverend Dr. Candace Lewis, now President Dean of Gammon Theological Seminary wept uncontrollably in disbelief of what had just happened. One of our gifted black pastors got up, walked over to me as he was leaving the building with tears in his eyes. And he called me mother and he said, mother, I can't do this anymore. It was either, it was in 2004, this very thing happened to Dr. Arnetta Beverly. It was just about midnight with consecration of bishops the next morning. Arnetta was just a few votes from being elected and we knew that this last ballot would put her over the top, but not so. You can only imagine what happened. Mary Virginia Taylor, who had no more than 100 votes, if that many, won out. Had it not been for the late Bishop Cornelius Henderson, I would have probably never served or be asked to serve as a district superintendent. Those were days that are so real still in my mind that I'm still finding ways to bring it all together. The next question said, what was it like to be a female person of color in ministry? Wow, I did not feel like an outsider. I was an outsider, but God wanted me to be an insider. Alone as it was, it was almost as if I did not exist. I'll never forget when Bishop Charlene Cameron became the Episcopal candidate for the Florida Conference. The clergy women had a celebration that I was not even invited to. Later that evening, Bishop Cameron and Reverend Pam Cahoon was, we ended up on the same elevator. And the response from Pam was, we forgot about you. You can only imagine how that struck me. I swallowed and held back what was about to come out. It was tough. It was much like my experience before the board of ministry when a clergywoman asked, why did I want to become a part of a white church? I knew then that the road toward ordained ministry was going to be rough, a rough road. The handwriting was on the wall. There's so much more that I could say, but time does not permit. This is another podcast altogether for another time. 
The question asks, tell us about how doors opened up for you on your way to being an elder and becoming a DS. The doors opened after a bishop made it clear, and I'll call the bishop's name, Bishop Joel McDavid, made it clear that he would never ordain me. And in the presence of his spouse, he shared that after my message during religious emphasis week at Bethune Cookman College. And after sharing that with my mentor and senior pastor at Cascade United Methodist Church, Reverend Kimbrough, he said to me, I know you're not gonna let that stop you. The late Reverend William Ferguson, who kept me encouraged, the late Bishop L. Scott Allen, the late Bishop Cornelia Sendence, who appointed me as the first black district superintendent. The late Reverend Aaron Hall, who walked beside me in my first appointment and last but surely not least, the prayers of my mother. My first appointment was created because they had nowhere to place me. They did not seem to think I'd fit in the places that they had offered. So they created a place at Florida International University, a commuter campus at that time, serving alongside Polly Cook, who was the full-time campus minister at the University of Miami. For seven months, that lasted and then appointed pastor of Sellers Memorial United Methodist Church after the death of Reverend Lawrence Hall. I served there for eight years. Sellers was receiving equitable compensation when I began and within two years, membership had increased. The giving increased and we became self-supporting. The next question asks, who have been some of your white allies on the way and what role did they play? Some of you may remember the late Bishop Lloyd Knox, who served as my district superintendent at my home church in Palatka and my district superintendent in Miami, gave me my first car that I drove to seminary. Reverend Thomas Mitchell, Reverend Ralph Houston, both served as the registrar of the Florida Conference and made sure that resources were made available while, while at Gammon and when I returned home. Some of the areas of growth for our Florida Conference in terms of anti-racism. And these are short responses, equity and compensation, committees that reflect the diversity of our annual conference, awareness of implicit or indirect bias and harm in the annual conference through the sharing of stories. My hope for the Florida Conference is that we would take seriously the issues of inequities and that we emerge and confront those issues courageously and with compassion. And then that we will find creative ways to right past wrongs. We've covered things up so long, the lives have been destroyed and God has called us to work through all of it. What does anti-racist conference look like? When I saw that, it left me pretty much speechless because that's an interesting question. It's hard to describe what I've never experienced. And I guess I ask you, what do you think it looks like? And we need to wrestle with that. How, what does an anti-conference, anti-racist conference look like? And I would pray that at the end of the day, there would be no need for us 
to have podcasts. So we need to know that God has called us in a way that we've never been called before. And not that we've never been called there before, we've just not walked in the path that we've been called. What does an anti-racist church look like? And race does not matter. I couldn't find a, a better answer or think of anything better. When race does not matter. God loves us just as we are. He accepts us as we are. I'm reminded of Dr. King's I have a dream message that he delivered on August the 28th, 1963, where he said, now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to open the doors of opportunity to all of God's children. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood and all mankind. What words of encouragement would you like to share with those of you who are on the, on the call today? If you know that you're called to, to the continued work of anti-racism, I just ask that you be vigilant, be courageous, see beyond your own experiences as we unite together. When you get discouraged, remember you are a disciple and anti-racism is the work of discipleship. There are some next steps for us. We need to learn how to do the work. We need to become serious about the work and commitment and begin to engage in conversation, not sometimes, but continuously, that will break down barriers, regardless of how uncomfortable it may be. I was reminded of Michael Jackson uh, recording a song that speaks to where we are right now in a song entitled Man in the Mirror. You may remember that. I'm gonna make a change, gonna feel real good, gonna make a difference, gonna make it right. As I turn up the collar of my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see their needs? A summer's disregard, a broken bottle top, a man and one man's soul. They follow each other on the wind, you know, cause they got nowhere to go. That's why I want you to know, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you wanna make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. We must have this conversation and move beyond the conversation. It begins with you, it begins with me. So my bottom line and message to you is to hold yourself accountable for God has called us to walk together as brothers and sisters, red and yellow, black and white. The children's song says they're all precious in God's sight, that Jesus loves us just as we are. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited that God accepts every part of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what a joy it is to know that God has called us to continue to pour our arms around those who don't look like us, as I say to folk, don't walk like us, don't quack like us, can't dress like us, God loves us just as we are. 
So during our time in these conversations, I pray that you open up your hearts and minds and allow God to accept people just as they are. The songwriter penned it well when it said, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. He didn't tell me to, wasn't waiting on me to get things together before I came. He wants us to come to him just as we are. So I thank you for this opportunity to share with you this afternoon, but know that God has called us to walk together children. As the old Negro spiritual say, don't you get weary because there's gonna be a great camp meeting in the promised land. May the blessings of the Lord be with you. Thank you so much, Pastor Geraldine for sharing. And thank you so much because I know that it takes a lot to remember those stories. And as you said, try to remove the pain from those stories. And you just experienced so much and you've endured so much. And I, we honor you today and we thank you for your witness. And we also ask for your prayers and your blessings upon us and upon the next generation that really is trying to do the work as well. And I want to thank you so much for, for this time that you shared. My, there are some questions that were brought up and some questions that I have myself. Um, if, if we don't mind sharing, you, you ready for a little Q&A, Pastor? Sure. Okay. Um, we know that the work of anti-racism is difficult. It's challenging. It's like carrying a burden. Um, that's, that's what it feels like, for me at least. So my question for you was, what kept you going? What kept you going? What kept me going? My faith in God. The men and women of God that I had around me to support me. And to know that if God called me, no one could stop that call. It was tough, it was hard, especially when you literally walked alone being ignored in an annual conference as if you did not exist. But I had to keep my eyes, as my mother said, on the sparrow that watched over me. How did you avoid burnout? How did I avoid burnout? Or did you avoid burnout along the way? Yes, indeed, I did burnout but I had places of respite, places that I could go, men and women of God that I could call, that I can't count them all on one hand because you just don't trust everybody with your life and things that you're going through. But had it not been for those that I had around me, I would have burned out. Very rarely in the African-American tradition or in the black church, especially in the central jurisdiction, very rarely did those pastors take vacation or have vacation. I'm a preacher's kid. My dad didn't know what vacation was because he was not only a, United, a Methodist pastor at that time, he died before the jurisdictions merged, but he was also principal of an elementary school. But we were taught to just go, that the work isn't done, you've got to go. Finding the time of respite, I never really did find until I retired. And then after resting up, I felt like I had just lost everything. So I'm, I've kind of re-engaged, but, but, but it, it's been tough especially when you're serving church as the lone ranger, the lone pastor, you become everything there is outside of what you were appointed to do. We've also had some conversations about um, some of the statements that you made regarding clan activity in the church. Uh -huh. and, and we had somebody ask the question, 
how would one recognize the presence of clan activity in the church? Wow, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I guess it, it's different for different folk. I, I, I guess for me, having grown up in the era that I grew up in, having lived out in the country uh, among um, the, the judges' families and, 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 and the sheriff's families and, and knowing the folk in the community, you can look at folk at sometimes and discern who they are. To give you a good example of that, I, we would always say when we, well, and we still live, the home place is still there and we're still there, but we knew those who accepted us in that community and we know those who did not. And it became very evident and we had already put a tag on those folk. But when the schools were integrated, my younger brother and sister uh, integrated those schools and we saw the same folk that we would see that in, in the area where we lived that never spoke to us, that began to really show their true colors. You can also discern it whenever you look at an older woman, my grandmother, and you call her, wanna know what her name is. And my grandmother kept saying, it's Mrs. Williams. And he said, I wanna know your first name. And she shared the first name and that's what he decided he'd call her by her first name. So there are some things that are obvious and in the church, it's different. Uh, you can sense it. Um, even when I have visited Anglo congregations, even when I was a district superintendent, uh, I went into one church and um, immediately called the N-word and wanted to know what the, what the hell was I doing there? I was, it was coming out anyway, so I might as well say it. Uh, and then it got so bad until I had one gentleman that came to my office, a tall Anglo man with a co big cowboy belt on, buckled and cowboy boots and hat on, never took his hat off. And I wanted to ask him so bad, but I said, no, there's some things you just leave alone. And I asked, how could I help him? And he shared with me the name of the church and shared with me that at their church conference that they would have to have policemen. And I laughed and he said, it wasn't funny. And I said to him, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because you think that I'm coming out there with that kind of thing going on. I have just canceled your charge conference. He said, you can't do that. Yes, sir, you've just come in and shared with me, you've got to have policemen in the church with guns on. I will not come into an area where there is no visibility that sits out in a graveyard in the woods and I lived in the woods and I knew better than go in the woods and not knowing what I would be confronted with. So it's, it's obvious. And I've, I've had to run into that all during my eight years as superintendent. There's another question. And the question is, thank you so much for sharing your story. Could you share a little about the role of the church in addressing a state legislator and a governor who does not want us to learn the very history you shared? Wow. The, it, you know, they talk about politics in the church and being careful how we deal with politics in the church. I can understand how, you, how, 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 we, how we need to leave it on the outside of the church as it, as it relates to voting Democrat, Republican, conservative, whatever that may be. But when it comes to something like this, I think it is, a, it is the role of the church to speak out toward those kinds of issues. Otherwise, we might as well say we're a part of it. There may be those sitting there who don't want to hear it. It may be there those sitting there who, who, who agree with what the governor and the legislature may be saying. 
but we're talking about speaking truth that where lives are, are, are concerned. We're talking about giving information that need to be given. As pastors, it becomes my responsibility to share with the congregation what is and is not in their best interest. Uh, I can understand the voting piece. I can understand not allowing us to become de decisive of, of, of who's gonna be take this seat or take that seat, regardless of whether they're Democrat, Republican, conservative, or, or whatever they may be, but it becomes our responsibility to keep our congregations informed. Before the merger, the black church was the only place we had to go to, 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 to gather information. And all of the information we needed to know about Jim Crow and everything else was, was shared. It was for our safety. And I think that anything that affects us, our living, our surroundings, that it become our responsibilities as pastors, whether those some of those sitting there accept it or believe it or not, or would rather not hear it, it becomes my responsibility, I think, or our responsibility to make sure that we have an informed congregation so that they understand the direction that things are going in. Do you see the United Methodist Church of Florida addressing this issue? I have not seen that happen at all, not during my time. I think it has been done. Um, I, I think it is, it, they've, it, it, they've tried to do it um, without coming out and just embracing the fact and, and being, what I've seen in the annual conference, I'll never forget there was one of, I think we, the conference was in Tampa when I spoke and began to talk about um, racial issues and things of that sort. And someone hollered out from, and I won't call the person's name, one of our pastors hollered out, uh, from out in the, the audience, uh, something that was literally in my mind un, un, uncalled for. But it's, it's obvious that the conference need to do that. When, when we choose not to step out on faith, when we choose not to stand by the word of God in terms of, 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 of that which we believe and that which we undergird and support and that scripture support, when we choose not to walk in God's will and God's way, we have made a gross error uh, the conference, the Florida conference in my mind has not really done that. We've tried bringing up uh, racial concerns long time ago. Black Methodist for Church Renewal uh, is an organization that was organized just in 1967, just before the merger to be the eyes and ears uh, of the annual conference once we merged and to be the eyes and ears of the black church to raise concerns and issues that would help us move along these lines. And we've been asking uh, questions for, for, for years. Uh, the General Commission on Religion and Race uh, was first suggested by Black Methodists for Church Renewal that there had needed to be an organization to help us uh, move through these rough waters as we begin to uh, solve problems. And that never did go too far at all. But, but I think the right place for us to discuss these issues is within our local congregations, the annual conference. Uh, bishops need to take uh, a, a strong stance. I know it's not always easy. Uh, and we kind of water things down so that we make sure we've pleased everybody in the building. But uh, I'm so glad that, um, that Jesus didn't try to please everybody, uh, especially when he went in and, and, and just turned the temple upside down. You're either right or wrong and we need to speak to it when, 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 when it you know, reveals itself. Yes, thank you for that great reminder of, that, of the role of the local church. And thank you again so much for leading today and for sharing your story. Uh, we're going to close out today, but I'm going to ask you at the end, if you would say a little prayer for us, if you would just, or just send us off 
with the blessing, with the benediction, as we all go into our context and, and try our best to engage into, in the work of anti-racism. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy in our lives and for all of the benefits you've afforded, not to some of us, but all of us. But Lord, I hear the words, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with us. Allow us, O oh God, to hold ourselves accountable and be that person, that man, that woman that looks into the mirror and asks God to change their ways. This is not just a one-way street, O oh God, it's for all of us, for you have called us as your servants to reach out beyond ourselves and embrace the lives of others. We ask your forgiveness for all that we have done to others, how we have hurt and failed to be your disciples. So we just pray, O oh God, that you just undergird us with your love, undergird us with your strength as we walk this journey to an annual conference and a world that begins with peace on earth. So Lord, we just pray now that you just allow the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts collectively, O oh God, be acceptable in your sight. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, rest, rule, and abide with each one on this call this day and grant us your peace and healing in the precious name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you to everybody. And th thank you again, Pastor Geraldine. You're welcome.